This is the rest of your team. This is Dick and Bob Sherman, music and lyrics voice, the one and only Mrs. P.L. Travers, the creator of our beloved Mary. Poppins. Who else? Mary Poppins. Never, ever just Mary. Pleasure to meet you. Oh, well. Here we shan't be acquainted for very long. Why is that? Because these books simply do not lend themselves to chirping and prancing. No. Certainly not a musical. Now, where is Mr. Disney? I should so much like to get this started and finished as briskly as is humanly possible. Perhaps someone could point me in his direction. I'd be so grateful. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Brick Pit. This is Josh. I'll be your host this evening. And with me, as always, is a man adapted from A.A. A. Milne's Piglet, Adam. Hello! <laughs> <laughs> and our other co-host, who is adapted from Edwin Abbott's Flatland, for the character of Square, Jason. So, uh... Can I speak in three dimensions? I, I don't understand how the rules I don't work. think anybody speaks in three dimensions. <laughs> <laughs> so, today's topic is going to be about adaptations, but in particular, ones that aren't so good. Ones you might call a badaptation. I coined that, nobody else can use it. I will sue them if they try. <laughs> they deserve it if they do. <laughs> So, like, we've discussed a million times over that the, the book is always better, except for rare occasions. But typically, like, remakes aren't any good. I wanted to break out the haterade, and we haven't had a good session where we just dog some films. <laughs> dog the hard work of hundreds of people representing thousands of hours of their labor and love. <laughs> just shoot it down from the sidelines without lifting a finger, because that's what we do sometimes. It's called the internet, Josh. All right. That's great television. <laughs> what you got there is conflict. <laughs> That's the essence of a good story, Josh. See, there's nothing better than a bunch of people that haven't done something telling people that have done something how they did it wrong. It's basically how I grew up. I just, I just want to go back for a second and figure out when we replaced Adam with Gary Busey. <laughs> About six episodes ago. Yeah, no, did, uh, did you not notice that? <laughs> to, to your point, Josh, my grandfather would say... Guilty, actually. I know it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. <laughs> my grandfather used to say, he used to complain about food all the time, and I said, you can't cook. And he says, I don't have to be able to cook to know how to taste bad food. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Fair oh, enough. <laughs> there's an element to truth to that. I, mean, you can, I do that preamble to know that, like, it's coming in the comments. <laughs> we do recognize that that is a ton of work to make movies, even bad ones. We're having but, fun. And, and, everyone and, is, point, and it's really mean of us to beat up on them because, you know what, Josh? Those folks work really hard, and they are so selfless, and they don't ever do anything to reward themselves for all their hard work. You know what we ought to do? We ought to have some kind of like award ceremony annually for all the different industries in the in Hollywood. It's really for good movies, though. <laughs> <laughs> you realize, like, crap movies don't get award other than Razzies. I guess <laughs> there's no participation award in Hollywood. I also, I also want to point this out that that I want to talk about specifically bad adaptations, 
doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad movie because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think there are some some really actually good films that are just not true to the source material. Eighty nine Batman, right? Or a misinterpretation of the source material. Starship Troopers is a perfect example. Starship Troopers is a fantastic satire. It's a great film. It's it's one of my favorite Verhoeven <laughs> films. It is not a good adaptation of no. your source material. It also, is, they it are is not very, the heroes. <laughs> you're, it's derivative. It's a der, 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 derisive <laughs> of it. You know, it it looks down upon mm. Heinlein's work. We can discuss the merits of that or not, but but the point being, it's not a good adaptation, what? even so, though it is a good film. Since you, since you brought that up, this isn't on my list, and I wasn't going to talk about it because we talk about it. Then shut up. Do, do you? So I am of the mind that Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is not as good as the movie to me at all. I think uh, it's one of those things that I think it's a bad adaptation. I th- I don't think it is a good representation of the source material yeah but it's also a brilliant film okay that's why i didn't add it to my list because i when i was thinking somewhere no, th- on the spectrum think- of okay but not great films is where i was going but well obviously especially when i when i named the, the episode bad adaptations right <laughs> you think bad films but right and to me there's a difference and we've talked about adaptations before that like when you change medium that there's going to be you know they have different rules on how you have to present the material. But there's a way to honor the source, you know, stick to the, the spirit of the source materials, mm-hmm. what what I think. And sometimes it's just bad all around. It can be a very close literal adaptation and be crap because it's just poorly executed. So I'll give an example, I think, on the other end of this that is a, a not typically we talk about good adaptation, which is Robert Ludlum's uh, Born. Or he did that, right? Pretty sure. Whoever wrote the Born Identity books, I think that's Robert Rodwood, but I'm <laughs> doing this off the cuff. Those adaptations for film are actually pretty good. They're totally not identical. They're not Born Identity, <laughs> the book. <laughs> but they're a pretty... Born Identical? Yeah, they're not Born Identical to the book. <laughs> they're but Born they're... Fraternal. <laughs> One was born four minutes earlier. <laughs> they do a good job capturing the spirit of those books. A lot of Tom Clancy books and movies seem to I think a lot of World War II films capture the spirit of uh, my <laughs> comics too. <laughs> it's not literal adaptations. Uh, yeah. <laughs> go ahead and sink us in hot water in the first five yeah. minutes. Uh, prank call, prank call. <laughs> Wrong number. <laughs> anyway, uh, carry on. So, uh, well, well, let's dig into this a little bit further. What is something that brick pitch you or that automatically makes you think something is a bad adaptation, like either stylistic choice or just amalgamation of characters? Interesting, because that's that's almost unavoidable. Yeah, it's hard to do it well. There's exceptions. Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings does it okay, but you know you can exclude characters. I think that's okay. I mean, clearly um, you um, can't. So yeah. just just whole cloth, cut them out. Yeah, I, I would rather you do that than give, a, especially if there's a weighty aspect to a character's, mm-hmm. you know, even if they're a one-act character, even if they have a one-act element to their story, if you give the weightiness of that to a main character just to get it into the movie, that that didn't happen to them, 
that cheapens both elements for me. Well, you know, so, so that's interesting because what that makes me think of is you guys probably don't care or will know anything about this, but uh, in, in the Harry Potter, Harry films, Potter was exactly what I was a, thinking. A lot, yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of dialogue that that movie yeah. Hermione has is yeah. actually from book Ron, and it really robs ron on the movies of a lot of his his strengths and character so he comes across as really weak and not a great friend yeah. because the screenwriter liked Hold hermione better well yeah. I mean, it is admitted in in interviews i like hermione better i like these lines i gave them to hermione it really hurt ron's character in the movies to where he's almost a different person they, they all kind of you know so those are good films that like have and, and so since it's a series like i think the earlier films are better adaptations yes and then the later films are worse adaptations but still yeah. good entertaining films i think they lose the thread once david yates took helm i i really think that he made some choices i didn't quite agree oh, with so I, that was actually what I had in mind when I thought of, of that because – and I didn't choose Harry Potter because, I, again, those I think generally are good films in their own right. Mm-hmm. And, we, and this is important, I think. I take a very strong stance. I don't like people who say unequivocally, oh, you, the book is always better than the movie. <laughs> that's not – A, that's not always true. And B, that's just a – that's like those people who are like, I don't own a TV. Like it's just obnoxious, it's an obnoxious personality trait. I always try to. It's a tough thing to hang your hang your coat on. Yeah. <laughs> a long time ago, because I am an avid reader and I'm an avid film buff, and of course, I mean, huge huge numbers of films are at least loosely based on some kind of book that I've read. If I had approached each film in that vein, every one of them be brick, brick pit. Because if you're if you're comparing it to the source material 100 percent of the time, it's like all the things we talk about for brick pits for people who have professions. Like if you're a you know, an airplane pilot. That's not how airplanes work. <laughs> if you're just constantly comparing it to the real world, in this case, the real source material, it's going to ruin it for you. Uh, so I think it's a, an important caveat here is people ought to, in my very strong opinion, disassociate the source material as much as possible until after they've watched the film. And then you can kind of sit back and compare this, the notes. It's a tough thing because I think you have to recognize, like we said, that they're, they're different, medium. different, different medium. And so right. there's going to be a different presentation, but like the case of 90% of uh, Philip K. Dick adaptations, you're like, that's not what happened. <laughs> this doesn't look familiar. Yeah. If well, I, if I watched the movie and said, I like that movie, I'd like to read the book. I would be like, this, the, is the, this the right book? Yeah. Is so it, to be well, fair, that's how I actually discovered Philip K. Dick. I saw Blade Runner, obviously, way before I read Androids. And after that, I started, I, I decided I to. You were shocked when you read Androids. What? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? Yes. Who's it this is. Mercer guy? What is. What is... A, a caveat to what I said previously was is that the closer you are to the source material as like a boy, this was my, like, Lord of the Rings, my favorite book or. You know, if you're like the Tom Clancy super fan and you've never seen a Tom Clancy movie, well, you're going to be sad. But Those much are pretty I, good adaptations, though, yeah, Clancy but if, movies. But that's because you're a casual, right? <laughs> I read Red Storm Rising in sixth grade. Do not tell me I'm a ca- I'm a Clancy <laughs> knight. I'm a- <laughs> I went, to, I went to Clancy Con for three years in a row. 
I'm one of the ghost writers on the new Tom Clancy books that come out. <laughs> How dare you, sir? Yeah, yeah. I have a Jack Ryan for president bumper sticker. One of the funniest things that The Onion put out during the Obama years was Tom Clancy died while Obama was president. It says, Tom Clancy dead. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> My point stands. The, the Clancy verse films. Are fine. Maybe I should pick another. You know, Maybe you should. Maybe Robert, should. Gold, Robert Goldfinch. Like <laughs> whatever. Who's, who's the uh, Who's the um, Tom Hanks versus the Vatican guy? Dan Brown. Dan Brown. All right. If you're not a yeah. That's a. If you're not a Dan Brown super fan, then you're gonna watch and read the book and be like, oh yeah, that those there's changes, but that's okay, right? But if you're like eating breathing that da vinci code you watch that movie you're gonna be mad (laughs) and i you know so each to their own i guess but anyway what was your second question your first question was what was a the thing that annoyed me i forgot what are we recording a podcast or what (laughs) (laughs) i think think for adam's uh competency hearing All right. This is interview, sir. <laughs> I think your question was, "What would brick pitch you on adaptations?" And so, right, or what? Twenty what, minutes what, later, from Adam, uh, what, my what, answer. Oh, yeah. Please lecture me on long-winded answers, Jason. I can't wait. <laughs> what thing? What things feed into a bad adaptation, Jason? <laughs> this is the McLaughlin group. <laughs> I think the main thing is you have to respect the material. You don't necessarily have to be a fan of it. If you're a director or writer, like Nicholas Myers didn't watch Star Trek. And yet he made the two greatest Star Trek movies ever. Wrath of Khan and uh, Undiscovered Country. And all the good stuff about the one with the whales. Yes. As long as you respect the characters, the setting, the concept. I think that's fine. Uh, what I don't like is when people's like, oh, you know, that's so outdated and modern audiences wouldn't like that. Right. You know, stuff like that. And that's one of the problems they've constantly had with doing a Superman film after the, the Christopher mm-hmm. Reeve ones is everybody kept trying to, oh, well, we have to give some edge to Superman for modern audiences instead of going it's like, no, we show why Superman is Superman even in this day and age. And, and why we need that more, which yeah. it's an interesting point because the Zack Snyder Supermans were cynical. I mean, uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> pa Kent in his, no, no, don't rescue me. And maybe you shouldn't have rescued those dying kids. Yeah. It's so antithetical to the character. It was it was because it's like, oh, it's hokey and this and that. And then you get, Marvel's Captain America, who is the man out of time, who has an older set of values and in, is in conflict with the modern world. That's the story. That should have been Superman. Yes. You know, they and they showed that that works. You know, when he tells Tony Stark to quit cussing and stuff like that, that's very, to me, Superman-esque. So, uh, sorry, Snyderverse fans. That Superman was a little... He wasn't quite as bad as Deadbeat Dad Superman. <laughs> Maybe the... No. The Tell worst me. take on Superman is what? Um, what other superhero movies do you not like, Hannity? <laughs> uh, I don't like Black <clears throat> Widow because she's Russian. There you uh, go. <laughs> and a woman. Tell us more about those traditional American values. That you- <laughs> I like I like good traditional 
American values like imperialism, <laughs> <laughs> going to other countries and imposing your will, like, protecting <laughs> protecting billionaires at all costs. That's <laughs> writing writing tax code that that <laughs> that helps out those already in power and have the money and punish those that are trying to gain. That's the American way. You know, last episode. For folks who remember two weeks ago, you defended Jane Fonda. This week, this week you're channeling your Hannity. We like to keep people on their toes around here. <laughs> I defended Jane Fonda because I did, did bring up the uh, the <laughs> in the room. <laughs> it was it was always there, man. Like it was... but yeah, so that was a bad adaptation. <laughs> and i think you're right like the heart and and just it's it's an understanding you can update something like clueless is an adaptation of uh emma i would say that that is a good adaptation yes it does have some like blurring of characters and it's very loosely based but the spirit and the overarching plot are the same the other thing about that and and i'll and it's just got paul rudd the other thing is it works on two levels, right? For folks who get it, who understand mm-hmm. that it's an adaptation, you're, you you see the wit in it. Mm-hmm. For people who have no idea what Emma is, it serves that superficial function that it seems to be designed to do, and it still works as that movie too. That's a film mm-hmm. that is, it had no right. Right. <laughs> it had no right to yeah. be that good. That's a good example. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It needs to be called in front of the UN. <laughs> Josh has been outside of Amy Herkelin's house. Really? Had no right to be that good. <laughs> How dare you? How You're... dare you make this adaptation good? You what got... am I supposed to rail upon in my my <laughs> my podcast? Yeah. You should be making Johnny you... Dangerously too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe so. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> why all these reboots? Why don't we have Johnny Dangerously too? An older, wiser Johnny Dangerously. Nineteen seventies New York with the like the seventies mobster gangsters. <laughs> oh, like yeah, like Johnny Dangerously versus like Hank Hill or whatever Henry Hill. <laughs> that would be. That'd be the best movie ever made. Johnny Dangerously versus Hank Hill. This is that would be great crossover I've ever heard. That's just asinine. (laughs) You're not making Christian music here. You're You're not making making the mafia better. (laughs) Man, we are all over the place tonight. (laughs) Tonight. Anything else you want to add to that, Jason, before I cut you off? I will say also the reverse of that. I think there's been bad adaptations for people who are too close to the material, mm-hmm. who too too much of a fan of it and aren't able to like let the things go that need to be let go to make it succeed. There's got to be a good balance between respecting the material and knowing when to change it. Right, I think like uh, when we talked about Lord of the Rings, I think that's what Peter Jackson did best. Is like he was obviously a very devoted fan, but he was also a filmmaker. I was kind of upset with the treatment of Faramir in the film, and you know, watching his interviews and stuff, he was like, "Look, in the book, Faramir is like, I wouldn't pick this thing up on the side of the road if I knew it would save my." 
country. Right. It's like, I just spent two and a half, three, four hours explaining about how dangerous this ring is. <laughs> and then right. we get this guy. He said, so narratively, he had to have some kind of struggle to be consistent in the film. Like, okay, yeah, I'll buy that. Right. And he I'll, also- I'll let you sully Faramir. A man of quality. <laughs> he also, like, you know, he took a lot of flack from a certain segment of Tolkien fans. He was given crap about not putting Tom Bombadil in. And his answer to that was, look, that's a really interesting part of that. Like, he didn't like, 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 he, like there, Peter Jackson's a, as a treasure. <laughs> Just his way to communicate with fans is like everything that George George Lucas would take a master class from <laughs> Peter Jackson about how to handle fanatics, right? <laughs> like nobody's ever gonna like throw red paint on Peter Jackson for his treatment. Of him, you know what I mean? But he's like, yo, that's a really interesting part of that book. I would love to have included that, but it didn't move the story forward. You know, we only had so much that we could cover, and this is what we had to do. And and look, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Tom Bombadil, whatever, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it really drags the story it, down. It, does, it is an like, out of place. The only thing Tom Bombadil did was establish the concept of the Ents. Right. The old it, man Willow that was yeah, that's you know, dragging the hobbits down. That's that's the only thing that really well, set And up. that was more foreshadowing than anything else. There is the incident with the barrel rights and stuff. And you, if you want to even a larger narrative, like song and reaching out for help and stuff like that yeah. is like a, is a theme throughout. Frodo later on like sing, sings out of Lindell and stuff and uh, calls the elves. So there, there are narrative threads, but I think he's just kind of goofy and dumb. Yeah. And- um, and you know, since we're already in this territory, I think I was just going to mention this in passing, but I think everybody's already tuned out. Yeah. So. <laughs> God, they're talking about Lord of the Rings again. The bad adaptation of this, of course, is The Hobbit, which is the polar opposite of the Lord of the Rings treatment. And we don't—we've talked about it so much, we don't need to talk about it more. But I think it, if we're going to do a bad a bad adaptation episode, we'd be remiss in naming without naming the most widely accepted example, which is these Hobbit films, which just. I'm going to go out on a whim here and say there are some parts of those Hobbit movies that are interesting departures from the books. If I had never heard of Tolkien and I'd never heard of Lord of the Rings, I never read The Hobbit and I just watched those films. This is where I could kind of step out of myself and say those are okay movies. And if I were to truly judge them, but I'm too close to the source material to be able to to be able to uh, independently say those are good movies. Right. I will also say there are parts of that film or the film that really do capture the sense of the hobbit like the in the first one when the dwarves are washing the dishes uh-huh. yes that's perfect. yeah that is good i agree and when and when they sing the, the song the song yeah My issue with The Hobbit is that it was too beholden to Jackson's films, which were an adaptation of Lord of the Rings, which is a different mm-hmm. tone. The Hobbit is a fairy tale. It's a children's mm-hmm. story. 
It is. Those films were taking that story, uh, yes, extending it to three movies that it didn't need to be, but also tonally trying to match Lord of the Rings when it shouldn't have been because no. it's a it's a tall tale that Bilbo told over the years. Where I would have taken it is I would have I would have definitely had it as a framed it as a kind of narrative device of yes. Bilbo yes. telling the story there. But they had it right, but. Yeah. But I would I would juxtapose that like his, his version of the story versus reality. with what was actually happening, which was a little more serious. And I think you could have bridged the the tone a hundred percent. You know, but but when but when they asked me to direct it, you were unavailable. You already you already no, yeah, you were already I was already, I was already committed to this podcast <laughs> in fifteen years. So, <laughs> well, and that's a real it's shame. Conflict of interest. We mix it is the the world is a darker place. I apologize for not doing that. Uh, in the future, I will be more cognizant of my actions and how they impact pop culture. Well, hopefully, when they remake <laughs> the Hobbit movies. In about eight or nine years, if schedule holds, you're perfectly correct. That is the very, very good idea is to have it framed. And you could do that bit where they come back to the narrator in his study, writing it down and remind mm-hmm. you that's what's going on, you know, and definitely not, definitely not three movies. Either. It, it should have been like Big Fish, like what, yeah. what the tale told versus reality. Yeah. And like that juxtaposition could have been like really, really funny. And powerful and people would hate it and, and it, well, yeah people hate everything yeah, <laughs> as i think of it i'm like yeah this is really good but it, but we'd get death we'd get death it's, it's good so it would, it, would, it would be hated anyway i'm working on my my tom bombadil prequel where he meets goldberry i'm, I'm surprised be- we're not watching a tom bombadil prequel right now <laughs> it feels like we are <laughs> That's the next season that brings the power. Yeah, so it would be better. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be even better if they didn't like pre preview it. They just went full Tom Bombadil. Like two He's singing about the river yeah, daughter yeah. with his like yellow boots. It's just, like, it's just him and Goldberry just doing like their day to day nonsense. <laughs> and it isn't until like the third episode, two hours long each, that that like the hobbits come like trampsing down the way. <laughs> I I would be endlessly amusing to me. That would make the other other mistakes they've made forgivable. That would be palatable. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, since we started talking about things already, sorry. Let's talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> things is what we do. We talk about things and stuff and people sometimes. So, Adam, you've had a little bit of a say. Jason, why don't you throw down something and see if we pick it up? Okay. Uh, first, I want to say the number one bad adaptation I've already done a hate box on by the power of hate box, <laughs> May twelfth, twenty twenty two. If you want to listen to it, uh, we're not going to go over that. That's a per- that's a perfect again. example of missing the point. <laughs> yes, I want to start off with a movie that really, really angered me because I looked forward so enthusiastically. Like, this had one of the greatest marketing campaigns at the time. And that is the 1998 Godzilla movie. Evidence 
of passengers dead or alive. Please stand by. Man, I was such a fan of the Godzilla films as a kid. And as I grew older, you know, in the 80s, they kind of got a little bit more darker, kind of went back to the the original concept. Mm-hmm. And so I was I was ready for that. And I was ready for an American version of it. And Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich mm-hmm. did it. You know, Stargate was a good movie. Uh, Independence Day was a good movie. So I was like, well, this, these guys are doing Godzilla and they're talking about like the original Gojira and how it was about, you know, nuclear testing and radiation and all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, they American get it. imperialism. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> they get it. They get it. And then I watched the movie and they didn't get it. This is a terrible film. I honestly hate it with every fiber of my being. Uh, but it was like a fantastic marketing campaign because they never showed the Godzilla monster mm-hmm. in full in a commercial until like a month after it was already out. Because I think someone in marketing realized like, you know, if anybody sees a mutated iguana, they're not going to buy a ticket. It is not a good creature design. No. <laughs> after Beastmaster came on TBS, usually there'd be some Godzilla movie on Sundays yeah. and I and I would watch them. And I enjoyed them, so I was I was not a super Godzilla fan, but I was I was also disappointed in this film. The two big sins is you're like you see the creature, and you're like that ain't Godzilla. That's, yeah. that's, like, that's like that's like Chinese knockoff Godzilla, the, the, the Wish dot com version. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. This is Demi Godzilla. <clears throat> it's like and Godzilla. What has become ubiquitous and the mini boss. Like, it's like, well, we got this big giant thing. Like, oh, we got to have the babies. So they got something more, you know, we got to have hundreds of them. And it's like, ah. It's also, it wasn't consistent because this creature kept changing in size. At one point, it's as tall as like the Empire State Building. And then the next, it's just crawling around in subway tunnels. There's a, uh, there's a cut scene that doesn't exist where they explain that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this. The CGI guy going like, "Listen, this is this is what they told us to do. We know it doesn't make sense, but it's Roland Emmerich not understanding scale. Like yeah. he's he designed the uh, um, the, the Stonehenge for uh, <laughs> this is for Final Spinal Tap. Tap. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's what it says. 
<laughs> it won the Razzie. That's that your year. favorite movie, isn't it? <laughs> Adam, don't you have a tattoo of that Godzilla across your whole back and front? It says, <laughs> it says Thug Life right. for some reason. It says Zilla for life is what it says. We have to mention, though, the Japanese weren't fans of this adaptation no, either. They were not. <laughs> <laughs> to the point that uh, when they did World War Three, <laughs> no, when what was it Godzilla two thousand came out? Oh they, yeah, there was clearly kind of a knock at the Independence Day aliens in there, the design language, mm-hmm. and also in a later film, the real Godzilla decapitates the American Godzilla in a fight. I liked Godzilla two thousand. My- <laughs> oh yeah, that was a great experience. Josh and I went to college with a guy who worked at one of the local theaters. And he like came up to us one day. He's like, you guys want to watch Godzilla 2000? We're like, yeah, we want to watch Godzilla 2000. <laughs> it's like he wasn't a drug dealer. So like, <laughs> hey, but kids. Like after the theater closed, like we walked in and watched Godzilla 2000. Just me and Josh sitting in there with like a case of beer. <laughs> and just our feet up on the seats in front of us. In like the greatest movie watching experience ever. That's that's because of that roofie he slipped you at the end of the night. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of Jason's favorite nights. So that's <laughs> wake up in a dumpster the next day, like it was like a night of the comet or something. <laughs> well, I got stitches on the side. <laughs> about where my kidney is one of my favorite stories about the godzilla is that shishuki kanoko his quote on that movie was you know they they showed him the film and he says it's interesting that the u.s godzilla runs from runs about trying to escape missiles from the americans it seems that americans are unable to accept a creature that cannot be put down by their arms <laughs> that's just that's a very japanese approach to that <laughs> that's just that's just funny <laughs> he's like i don't get it what, what are you guys trying to prove <laughs> it's just all right, well, I want to talk about one, I, and I guess I talked about this before, but I rewatched it in preparation for this, and um, my opinion of the film has changed a little bit. I don't know if it's that I'm just getting soft, but that is the Arnold Schwarzenegger epic, The Running Man. In the year 2017, an innocent man accused of a crime has a choice. Hard time or prime time. Sensational. Perfect contestant. I want him. He must pay or play the running man. On your mark. I'll be back. Go! The highest rated TV show in history. Because they want us to stay. It's a game between life and death. Can you lift? Arnold Schwarzenegger is... The Running Man. He's playing for a prize. The prize is his life. How about the life? The Running Man. Based on the Richard Bachman book, 
the running man. <laughs> Richard Bachman being a nom de plume of Stephen King. He wanted to see if he still could publish something without his name attached, and so he started writing under Richard Bachman. If you read The Dark Half, that's basically the story of him and Richard Bachman. He wrote darker stuff as Bachman, and The Running Man, the, it's a short story. Uh, it's hard to find, but it is... Absolutely incredible. It's one of the few, like, looking into the future films or, or books that, like, nailed it. Because essentially, like, was it the Squid Games or whatever mm-hmm. is what is happening in The Running Man. It's like, in the book, totally, uh, like, lays out what would become reality mm-hmm. TV. In the large gulf between the rich and the poor. To where what happens in the book is, like, people are so desperate that they'll go to this network to go on these TV shows where they can be killed so their family can get money. And The Running Man is like the most popular show. You basically have to film yourself and send it in to the network so they've got something to air and they send hunters after you. They send professional bounty hunters after you to try to find and kill you. And you can play at home because if you find the guy, you can call in and if your tip leads to him being killed, you get money. So essentially, everybody in the world is looking for you. You're going to die, but for every hour that you're free, you get this huge sum of money for your family. Jark! dark cynical stuff and the guy is like dyes his hair so he puts like a pillowcase over his head so people can't see and he like points the camera at his chest and he reads like the ten commandments he reads like passages from the bible like basically like using the platform to like try to open the eyes up to the audience of like look this is disgusting this is terrible what we've become as a people and so the studio overdubs it with all this horrible stuff where he's talking all this (laughs) anti-american stuff and all it's like it's so it's so like if you read it you're just like oh my god how depressing we're living in the running (laughs) then you get the arnold schwarzenegger movie (laughs) which 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 has the same name (laughs) and uh in the first 30 minutes of the film, he's on a chopper because I think he had to be on a chopper in every film in the 80s. And they're like, there's like food riots. And they're like, hey, you got to kill all those people. And you're like, no, women and children down there. I can't kill them. Arnold, is that you? He joined the podcast. <laughs> he did. This film reminded me like what what an outlier like Schwarzenegger's career is because especially earlier in his career, he got better. Mm-hmm. But man, his accent is crazy thick. And you're like, this dude becomes like the highest paid actor. He's like this huge, but get to the chopper. I don't want to kill those people. And you're like, what? I'm an American police officer. You're like, no, you're not. They always have to make up a cockamamie reason. Like, you just recently immigrated. I have found my new ringtone. <laughs> Anyway, he goes to prison. There's this whole prison escape. None of this has anything to do with anything. Richard Dawson, which was great casting. And like I said, there's some great things about this film. There's some really bad things about the film. Dawson is definitely a highlight. One of the great things is you take America's TV show host and put him in this dystopia. That's brilliant. So he sees the guy and he's like, get me the Department of Justice's entertainment department on the phone. And then he says, no, no, get me the president's agent. And like, it's, it's such a great like world building line. And like, 
he has a back and forth with Arnold. It's time to start running! Get set! Killian, I'll be back. Only in a rerun. Go! <laughs> like, up until, like, he gets on the Running Man stuff, there there is all this world building that is very much... This is what it's like to me. It's like somebody took a Stephen King novel, put it through the filter of Philip K. Dick... <laughs> And then had John Carpenter direct it. That's what this movie is. <laughs> I want more of that. <laughs> There's a lot of satire yeah. about about in, in in like you know like get the president's agent stuff like that. That's very Philip K. Dick, but it, it works in the film. It's like okay, you go seventy blocks and we'll let you go. Okay, they got to scale it down for the film. I get it, and it's all. But then, like, they have, like, these American gladiator kind of hunters that they people pick. And, like, the first one is, like, this big sumo guy that ice skates. And he's got, like, a hockey stick that's, like, bladed. He's randomly picked by this member of the audience. And, like, Arnold and company, oh, we got to get 70 blocks. And they're running. And they run into an ice skating ring. What are the odds <laughs> that they run into an ice <laughs> skating ring part, yeah. when somebody had picked the ice skating guy? Yeah. That's bad luck. <laughs> the hunters, like if they would had toned that down, like there's just one guy that sings opera and he's got like all these electric lights on him. It's just, it's just stupid. But again, like it's almost there as an adaptation, and then it get it gets really eighties actiony, and you can see, you can just see the parts where I was like, no, I can't do that. <laughs> Your Austrian accent is marvelous. <laughs> I know. I, I recently immigrated from Austria <laughs> to become a podcaster. When I read The Running Man, I read it like in seventh grade and it like blew my mind because it was like. Never read the book. It's really cynical and dark. It's very Stephen King, but it's like it also like the, like as the years went by, like I said, it's like you're like, holy crap, this guy. This guy saw the handwriting in the wall in the late seventies, and then you watch this movie, and and it really boils a lot of it down to, it's like it has the trappings, but it's basically just a, a kind of mindless action film, and it's the setup is so good too, because even with the prison break and all, the world building was like, it it seemed like the same world as they live. It really did. <laughs> it was almost like a, a William Gibson, you know, cyberpunk. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and they, and they do stuff like like they make they frame this guy was uh, Schwarzenegger was like a hero, and they like they edit his footage and make it look like he killed all those innocent people, so everybody's rooting against him. All that stuff is there, and then it's just like man, they just as soon as that dude puts on uh, ice skates, <laughs> <laughs> and they trap the they trap one of the guys in like a goal that like collapses like a trap. It's like. That's just—it's so contrived. It's like I get it that they're playing on, they're playing up too much. It's like they read it and said, "Oh, it's a game show, so we got to do game show stuff." Yeah. And it's like oh, that's—that's that's not what the book's about, man. <laughs> I love that cynicism is still there because you also uncover the fact that no one wins the Running Man. Like they, right? They have promoted that these three guys have won and they've won their freedom and they're in Hawaii or Fiji or something <laughs> like that. And they come across the burnt corpses. Mm -hmm. 
it's all rigged. It's all faked. It's it's all fixed, and there's no escape. Yeah, and and one of the like, uh, who's it? Is it is it Mick Fleetwood that's in it? I know, like Frank Zappa's son is in it. Yeah, yeah, he's like he's got like a, almost a, a non-speaking role, but I think it's Mick. He's this kind of underground guy. He helps them get the neck collar that explodes off when they escape because you're contractually obligated to have that bit in an 80s action film. Yeah, it's Mick Fleetwood. He says, yeah, I know you. You're that cop. And like, you're the, you wouldn't let him sell my music. And I'm like, yeah, that that's the dystopia. You couldn't buy a, you couldn't buy rumors. That's how it all went, <laughs> it all went downhill. It's also got a, a very interesting cast. Like I said, Richard Dawson, which is brilliant casting in it. You also have Yafet Kodo, Jim Brown, Jesse Ventura is in it as one of the the boss. Yeah, he's well. He's yeah. He's like a like a retired hunter, and he does like uh, he does he does commentary and interviews. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like like the Amer- the the former American Idol that that becomes like a like that interviews the new people. Coming. What is very much his role in the WWF at the time? He was doing uh, wrestling. He was doing commentary and interviews, and, and, and he comes out of retirement to to take take out Arnold Schwarzenegger. You can guess how that works out for him. Uh, <laughs> well, no, that's the thing. He refused to do it because they gave him like this over, like produced costume and everything. Whereas he really just had like the spandex and everything before, and he's like really angry. He's like, I don't need this, these gadgets and everything. I used to kill runners with my bare hands. <laughs> Jesse, Mister Governor, <laughs> I'm glad you could join us. Did you know Arnold was here? He's also <laughs> a, he's also a governor. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't have time to bleed. <laughs> but it, they fake the fight using... Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. To, to make it look like he killed Arnold's character when he didn't. That's right. Yeah, they use like deep fake technology. Yeah. That was pretty cool because like they just grasped Arnold's face on a, on a, on a model. <clears throat> and it's like, whoa, this movie accidentally predicted this. <laughs> I don't think it was intentional. Ultimately, it was it was a fine action film, but it was not a good adaptation. And I liked it better watching it this time than when I first watched it. After having just read the short story, I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. Oh, this isn't it at all. And uh, the book does end with the main character hijacking a plane and crashing it into a building. So I, I don't think the remake is going <laughs> to, if they ever do it, that's, that's going to happen. <laughs> Okay, so looking at it, this is an interesting bit of trivia. Before Arnold Schwarzenegger was cast in the main role, they were looking at Christopher Reeve. Hmm. That would have been interesting. Hmm. I would. I don't know if Christopher yeah. Reeve could do the Austrian accent. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I lost the part. Like it clearly says it's a recent immigrant from Austria. <laughs> Script. <laughs> Who who we're gonna get that does Austrian accent? <laughs> so uh, Richard Dawson's role reminds me of Wayne Newton's role in License to Kill. Wayne Newton plays the slimy preacher. It's kind of in that neighborhood, but he's all like smiles and stuff with the audience. And like when he first shows up, like this guy's mopping and accidentally trips him. And he's like, "Oh, that's all right, that's okay." And they get in the elevator, and he's like, "If that dude's still mopping by the time we..." Uh, I leave here, you're going to be mopping the floor. You know, he's like, he's a real not nice guy. No good Nick. A rapscallion. <laughs> That's a word we don't You want to keep enough. going off your thesaurus.com tab there that you got open? He's a popping jay. <laughs> Jackinate. 
I know words. <laughs> choose, choose to use the fewest I can. Josh, the 1930s pulp writer. You know, you sound you like know, you sound like Jackie Childs from Seinfeld. That's, <laughs> he's a puppet Jay. <laughs> he's a scallywag. And, and I wonder why my books can't get published. <laughs> full, of, full, insightful dialogue. Uh. Poppin' Jay's day out. <laughs> the no good knave in his no good day. The children's books. <laughs> what, what you got, Adam? So I I want to talk about uh, World War Z. Oh. We do know it's the aircraft touchdown. Yeah, are these the roots? What is it? Statue of Liberty or Snowman? <laughs> declared martial law. Daddy, what's martial law? Moscow's still dark. Life as we know it will come to an end in 90 days. It's on us to change that. I can't leave my family. Don't pretend your family is exempt. When we talk about the end of humanity. I don't want to leave you. I have to go. I'll be back and safe. a memo sent from this installation. Pretty obvious nobody back home bothered to read it. If I could get into Russia, where would I start? Russia is a black hole. I need answers. Guns are half measure. You with the CIA? Well, they're not with me. Karen. Is there anything left up there? If we knew where this thing started, then maybe we could kill it. I think these things have a weakness. Every human being we save. It's one less to fight. stop you right there no. because you def- you defended this movie yeah. on our zombie yeah episode. so i am going to talk about it is a bad adaptation and it is an okay movie but it is a very bad adaptation yes okay <laughs> so the way i'd approach this is that the book has a lot of really interesting things going on to on that don't appear at all in the films the, the most prominent of which is it is a somewhat biting social commentary it's a very political book came out in 2006 it has some really interesting being on the other side of COVID like we are some interesting predictions about the way a worldwide pandemic would be handled in different <laughs> countries. It's just interesting. If you've not read it, it's by uh, Mel Brooks's son, Max Brooks, and it's written a hundred percent satire tongue in cheek. And he's, he's very much more talented than his brother, Min Brooks. 
You got to do that in the Austrian accent for it to sell. Max Brook wrote this other book first, which is called The Zombie Survival Guide, which is also which is great. which is really really good. It came out in two thousand three. That's a satire, but it totally changed my zombie apocalypse plan. Hundred percent, and it's real. So here's the thing: no joke. It is. It's a good survival it's guide. It's a good survival guide. Both of the books are written 100% as if they're real. Like, they never break characters. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, The Zombie Survival Guide is just a, it's just a good, like, oh, that... It should be on every prepper shelf. Yeah, uh, honestly, if you're a prepper... It, it's a good for other things than zombies, too. Because it is actually really well-researched and, and thoughtful. And so, the bit is, is that... In World World War Z, the book is an oral history of the zombie war, which is so this is 20 years after the zombie outbreak. And this guy works for the UN and he's going around taking history. It's written from the perspective of a political historian, which is super. It's like Ken Yeah, it's like Ken Burns. Yes. Zombie War. Yeah, it's a that, which if they did the movie like that would have been the greatest yes. thing ever committed to cinema ever. Which Oh my gosh, yes. And it's so dry and it's so witty. You're so close. It's based on the oral history of World War II by Stud Circle. Ah, that's yeah. that's the model. And so he like very closely mirrored that book. Very Ken Burns-esque, you know, whatever. Uh, by the way, if you've never read an oral history of World War II, that's a really good book too. That's not a comedy. That's a real thing. <laughs> that's, that's less funny. He still has some laughs. Yeah, not where you expect though. <laughs> The bunker bit's hilarious. <laughs> it, those jokes killed. Yes. <laughs> that Hitler stuff was on fire. <laughs> Super fan Kevin's laughing at this because he's a World War II buff. So at least he's No, laughing. he's probably crying. <laughs> anyway, so the other thing, of course, is that it's the George Romero version of zombies in in both of the books is the traditional shuffling there. What, what I would call the original zombie form ghouls ghouls in the book, the virus that causes zombieism originally called uh, Solanum. It, it starts out in China in a remote province. Interestingly enough, it's water in this case. Okay. It's, it's caused by a, a dam being built in and in, in out, whatever. So the Chinese try to cover it up and they, and it spreads very quickly around the world, but it's next most prominent location is in Africa where the American media takes notice of it and they immediately start calling it the African rabies. They racialize it into this, like, <laughs> like we shouldn't, we shouldn't know Africans into the country. Like, I mean, it's, you know, it's this, it's this very, like, it's fascinating to read in a different light. It is. Post COVID. Yeah. And honestly, to be fair, I, I picked it up during COVID because I thought it would be funny to read. <laughs> Like, and you know, we were all hunkered down. I was like, what's a good book to read these days? And I was like, oh, this will be. And and so I haven't read it for about three years. But at the time I was like, this is too close to the bone, really. I mean, it it, it was hard to read. If you were a conspiracy theorist, you would say that that was Mm pre-programming. And if you're not crazy, you would say people are pretty predictable and this is probably what would happen. <laughs> Max, Max Brooks just, just happened to be a student of, of humans. <laughs> he, he just knows people do things <laughs> a certain way, pretty consistently throughout history. <laughs> There's other aspects to it. The biggest, biggest, biggest part is the, this lack of social commentary that I think it really drives the story 
in the book, it's an election year, right? <laughs> and, so, and that's super important. So the, the U.S. government wants to downplay the, the pandemic and not cause a, a panic. And, and so they blame everybody else or whatever. But the biggest thing is, is that there's no main character in the book. Right. And to your point, if they'd done it like a Ken's Burn documentary where they did it straight, if they just played it straight like a Ken Burn documentary, that would have been an excellent film. So in the book, I mean, in the movie, Brad Pitt works for the UN, right? Right. That's, that's about. So there's some, some backstory drama to this, right? The movie had all kinds of problems in production. It was rewritten by four different screenwriters the very last screenwriter two-thirds of the film had been filmed already when he came in to finish writing it and so that's all that's uh, yeah, yeah. you know so they had all kinds of production issues and so what it ended up being is just a traditional zombie movie and it's a fine zombie movie it's oh it it has it has a lot going there's you know there, I, I you know if you want to hear me defend it in the zombie film episodes that's fine but there are elements to it that i like and even max brooks is on the record as saying, look, this bears nothing in resemblance to my book other than the title. And I still think it's okay. Like that's his take on it too. And that's kind of my take. It's a, look, this is the worst, this is the, the worst adaptation I could think. Of. That, that's, that sounds like a man that would like other books uh, other adapted into films. <laughs> other paycheck. Yeah. I think this is an example kind of like, you know, running man as well is when you get a certain star attached. Mm-hmm. start to tailor the movie for the star and not for the story too much studio involvement too many writers yeah. it's always a bad sign it's like solo you know a star wars story like ha- they're almost done with the movie and they're like nope scrap it <laughs> get ron howard <laughs> uh and then like and everybody's like this will be this will be fine there's, there's, no, there's no way this will not blow up in our face the the very well, last... didn't you say you liked Solo? I did, but it could have been. I feel about Solo the way Adam feels about Kenobi. It's not the worst thing <laughs> that Disney's done. <laughs> it's right about the middle. <laughs> like... <laughs> Just enough a palliative opium is what. That... <laughs> the last thing I'll say about World War Z, and the reason I would encourage if you were going to pick one or the other to to do is to read the book. The book spends. Oh, have you read the Have you read the book by any chance, Josh? The World War. Yeah. Okay. So the part that I like is the end. The last half of the book really is where they spend a, a long time talking about what life is like now that it's settled down twenty years later. Mm-hmm. The zombies aren't gone. You don't win the zombie war. You don't. You don't win the COVID war, right? You, le- you, you learn to, to live. With you learn it. to live with it. And, you know, they're in the oceans, they're in lakes, they're in the mountains. You can't go hiking in the woods anymore because they'll turn up. And what it basically tells you is here's the things you need to have on your everyday carry to be able to deal with these inevitable situations where they turn up. And it's, you know, life goes on, but here's the practical aspects of it. It's a neat take on that sort of kind of a more realistic take on like the end of Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Actually, that's a really good example. Yeah. What's interesting is what I liked about the books um, that certainly wasn't in the film, but the, but is what I don't like about The Walking Dead is man's natural state in mankind, humanity, is to organize right. and have government and stuff and like like stuff like The Walking Dead and all that. It's like that's okay for like in the immediate aftermath. Yeah. Within five or ten years, people will have right yeah. like twenty years from yeah. now, the world's the world looks different. But it looks the same at the same and, time. And we because, and we have 
thousands of years of examples of this, of people right. forming government within and things causing collapse of society. And then and yet do it, again. it springs yeah. it springs back up. Death and taxes, man. <laughs> yeah. Perfect zombie film title too. Death and taxes. This, this, this IRS agent, right? <laughs> it all starts with the IRS. <laughs> He's, he's he's the only one that knows about the outbreak, right? <laughs> it's played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Get to the chopper. <laughs> Get to the all <laughs> So you're an IRS agent, huh? Job. <laughs> Recently come from Austria. I went to tax school <laughs> they have a gym there you're like huge man <laughs> I love when in, in Arnold Schwarzenegger films when they don't explain why he's just like the biggest dude in the world like, <laughs> like jingle all the way he like sells like mattresses yeah. or something it's like <laughs> it works all the time it's like when do you work out because you can't you can't even make it to your kids karate class because you're working <laughs> But you somehow can like maintain this muscle physique. That's your brick pit and jingle all the way. <laughs> How about true lies when he's just supposed to, his cover is just a computer salesman. <laughs> but at least he really was like an agent. So like, it's yes, like but how do you explain that? <laughs> how do you explain his wife? computers is heavy. I wake up at 4 a.m. to go to gym. <laughs> Well, I guess you're right. It was still the CRT monitor. <laughs> there are going to be special editions of all Arnold Schwarzenegger films that are going to have like like addendum, like people like that not associated with the film, like like when they redid the stuff this, for uh, Night of the Living this Dead. This accent was offensive then, and it's offensive now. <laughs> it was not okay was then, and it's not okay now. <laughs> people explaining it, like why he's so buff, but like. You know, that guy works all the time. When he's not working, he's working out. <laughs> got time to lean, got time to do push-ups. <laughs> he instituted a calisthenic program for the, for the mattress salesman. And on that note, be sure to reach out to us and tell us what you think about the show, about adaptations. And Jason, where can they find us? They already did find us because they're listening to this. So they, they found one of the places. Unless this is like left on their doorstep and they think it's like a ransom video or something. And that's a bad adaptation of a closing. <laughs> at least it was a closing. You can complain to the management at brickpit at gmail.com. Find us on our social media, Facebook and Twitter. Just search for the Brick Pit Podcast. Or go to our anchor page at anchor.fm floor slash brickpit. All right. And on that... Get to the choppers and good night. <laughs> <laughs>